0: Let's start with prayer this morning, or start the message time with prayer. Or this morning, I want to lift lift up another pastor and his wife and another church. I want to pray for Steve and Karen Lawson and uh, Grace Community Church. Thinking about the commitment that Steve and Karen have made to this community, uh, really, most of his adult life has been spent ministering in this community. I'm thankful for that ministry. I'm thankful that. Uh, Steve and Karen are spending themselves for your glory and your namesake in Greenbull. I'm thankful, too, that it's a church right down the road that we are cheering for, who also cheers for us, who are ultimately both cheering for your, your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. What I pray for Steve and Karen. I pray for their marriage, that uh, you would guard and protect their marriage from a lot of the things that can happen in just marriage in general, but even ministry-specific type demands where Steve may look to the church as his bride, or at least be more attentive to the church than he is to his bride. I pray that you would guard their marriage from that, as I pray you would guard our marriage from that. Um, and Lord, as far as the ministry of Grace Community Church, I do pray for a partnership and a, um, really a, a zeal for your, your glory and your name to be famous and renowned through each other's work. Thankful for a real partnership in this community. Lord, also, I'm too, I'm, as I'm thinking about praying for another church that is not our denomination, that it, it maybe have some, has some different beliefs than we have, thinking about all the other churches in our community who also have different beliefs here and there, I'm thankful that we all agree on a triune God and a virgin birth, and a risen Savior that's seated and reigning and ruling and in session beside you right now. I'm thankful that we can have different beliefs in the same faith and that we can call ourselves, call each other brothers and sisters. That's a sweet encouragement. I'm thankful, too, that each church can connect to someone in a way that another church may not be able to. That you even use our differences for your own glory and the advancement of the kingdom. Lord, this morning, too, I want to pray for a couple of our church family members. I want to pray for Billy Vaughn as he's dealing with uh, cancer and sickness and um, suffering. Lord, we just pray that you would heal his body, whether it's through medicine or through just miraculous direct healing. Our brother is hurting. brother is um, sick, and we just lift him up. We pray that your will will be done, and we share the, the desire of our heart is that you would heal him. And, thank, and also, Lord, we are very thankful as we think about all that you've done in Christian Hass's life to bring her in the direction of health and restoration, of just full health, just considering where she was just even weeks ago and considering where she is now. We give you all the glory and we enjoy that and we enjoy you and we're thankful. We pray for Robert too. We pray for Robert publicly. We pray that Robert can see you at work in and through your people, in and through Christian's progress, and that Robert could come to faith through this, and that he can worship, would worship and enjoy you through the faithfulness of his wife and daughter and a church that surrounds them. I want to pray for the seeds that were sown this weekend in the women's retreat. We are so blessed as a church that the wives and ladies of our church they are so much a part of each other's lives and are so zealous in their pursuit of you. We're so encouraged to be part of a church family where ladies are really walking in Titus 2. God, I pray that the seed that was sown over this weekend that it would find purchase and that in time it would ripen and give and give it would grow up and bear fruit and it would ripen and uh, that you would be glorified in your season and in your time. Lord, we turn these next few minutes over to you. I'm excited about the next eight weeks. So blessed to spend eight weeks considering your son as high priest. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have a little one, littlest, not the littlest, tiniest with us in here this morning, but we have the next littlest in here. Once a month, on the last Sunday of the month, and parents, I want to set you free. I know that might be a little ner- you might be a little nervous about that. Just do the best that you can. You know, obviously, if somebody becomes a distraction, then it might be best to take them to the little other building. We have the, the sermon on video there as well, so that may be a better spot if somebody's really having a difficult morning. But if you know if some noises here and there, don't worry about um, a certain amount of that. We're prepared for that. We can handle that. That's um, little future worshipers and even current worshipers in some ways. So we can, we, can, we can deal with it. And parents, just do the best you can. If you're feeling like, man, I can't listen to this sermon for wrestling with my you know, four-year-old, um, it's, it's recorded. It's online. So you can go back and listen to it. So you can do the best that you can do in here, and then you can go back and listen to what you may have missed. So don't, don't be alarmed and uh, just do the best you can do. These are little bitty wee doses, of what we hope they'll be able to take weekly when they get a little bit older. So it's also a little dose for you, a little wee dose for you, as you ease you into them being in in here with you each week. So hang in there. This too shall pass. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me, please. The last few weeks, we've been considering a passage between chapter 5, verse 11, and chapters, really the end of chapter 6. And really from verses, chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 9, we had some really, really difficult passages to work through. Much avoided, much uh, debated, uh, tricky little passages. We worked through those passages, and I'm pretty excited because a real treasure comes from the warnings in those passages, And the real treasure, when he's calling them milk drinkers, and he's saying, you know, I really want to deal with something that's really going to help you in your context, Hebrews Church, who's considering going back to Judaism because it's hard to be a Christian in Rome 2,000 years ago. As he's speaking to these guys saying, you guys are drinking milk, I want to give you some meat What he wants to give them and what he develops or starts to develop before that warning and what he really nicely develops after that warning is a teaching on Christ as high priest. And I'm pretty excited that we as a church will be equipped to consider Christ as a better high priest over the next eight weeks. We're going to spend eight weeks as a church eating meat as a result of this passage, it's pretty, pretty exciting to think about, not just studying in some sort of academic, fact-collecting way, but in a way that we're really going to wrestle with, how do we connect this to Tuesday? How do we connect this to den? How do we connect it to cubicle? How do we connect it to workspace? How do we connect it to our lives, our marriages, our parenting? That's what we're going to be considering these next eight weeks as we consider Christ as high priest, because that's what he's bringing the Hebrews church in their context. The book of Hebrews is a book of comparisons. I wouldn't have known that before climbing into it a few years ago and really unpacking this example after example that he uses where he compares things that are sort of Jewish, not sort of really Jewish, to what Christ is and what he's done. He's comparing shadows to substance because they're considering bailing on the substance and going back to the shadows. So he goes through one example after another. In chapters 1 and 2, he deals with Jesus, Jesus being better than the angels. There wasn't an angel worship in the, in, the, in the ancient Israel, ancient Jewish church, but there was a really high view. They had a really high view of angels. So the first couple of chapters, he says Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter 3, he says Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter 4, he says Jesus is better than Joshua, as in Joshua that led them on the conquest. And now... Really, he's gonna develop between here and the end of chapter 10 that Jesus is a better high priest. It's a really beautiful development. We're gonna start in chapter four, verse fourteen. And this morning we're gonna work from four fourteen all the way through five ten. Chapter five, verse ten. And we're gonna do it in four chunks. I'm gonna give you sort of a map for the morning. It's gonna be very important that you kind of Have your bearings, and if you get distracted or something, you know where we are so where you can come back. We're going to unpack this first section, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. It's about Jesus. We're going to unpack that a little bit and grab what we can there. And then the second portion of it, we're going to move to chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, and we're going to unpack that as talking about high priests in general. Not necessarily Christ yet, but high priests in general. And then we'll move from there to look at chapter 5 verses 5 through 8 to consider Christ as high priest. And then we'll consider the last couple of verses there and close out the morning in verses 9 and 10, continuing to talk about Christ. So four chunks. So if you get dis- dis- distracted or disconnected, you can come back to where we are. And as we go, what I often do on Sunday mornings is we'll sort of unpack the luggage, and then we'll consider some application points. What we're doing this morning is we're going to consider the application points as we unpack the luggage. So be important that you, you're attentive and that you engage, because these application points will sneak up on you. I'm not going to give you a lot of heads up, although I'll do my best. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 14. That was a long introduction. Okay. Let's get in it. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. If there was one theme of the book, it's a book of comparisons, but that's not the theme. If there's one theme of the book of Hebrews, it is hold fast Hebrews church. Don't bail on Christ. And here we see the theme yet again. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need now just unpack some of the luggage from this these few passages Christ is presented as the great high priest And he's presented here as transcendent. When he's talking about he's passed through the heavens, this is communicating the message that he is transcendent and is infinitely greater than any high priest that has ever been or would ever be, if there were any remaining ones. This is pre-destruction of the temple, so there likely was even a high priest at this point. But now despite his transcendence, Despite the fact that he has passed through the heavens, this high priest is a sympathetic high priest. He's not an aloof, disconnected, uncaring high priest. He is a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses and our temptations yet without sin. A high priest who knows our temptations and weaknesses. We've already heard this message a little bit in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's us, the human brother, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was fully God, yet he is fully human. And his sympathy comes from his humanity. Yet he is without sin. His suffering came not in making bad decisions. We know that kind of suffering. His suffering came not from making bad decisions and then having to deal with the aftermath of sin. His suffering was a different type of suffering altogether. His was from a lifetime of saying no to sin. Which is even worse suffering. He wore the same hungry, frail flesh that you and I wear. Yet he said no for his entire lifetime his sympathy did not depend on the experience of sin but rather the experience of temptation to sin which only the sinless can know i found an illustration by doug wilson that i really enjoyed i appreciated what he was bringing or how he sort of explained this he said he's an expert on sin and temptation and he used the example of 10 men who are having to walk home in 70 mile an hour winds. Nine of them fall immediately and never make it home. But the 10th one withstands the wind and takes every step plodding and makes it home. Which one is the expert on wind? The one who did not fail. The one who did not fall. This is the sympathy of our high priest, yet one who did not sin. Man. So because of this, because of this sympathy, we're encouraged, the Hebrews church is encouraged, so we're encouraged to draw near in time of need. If he were aloof, if he were capricious, if he were angry with us if he was if you never knew what to expect if he had it in for us then you better not approach that throne of grace but because of his sympathy because of his humanity because he knows the wind the same wind that has led every single one of us to fall we can approach with confidence we can draw near in time of need to the throne of grace One of the things I enjoyed about this study and climbing into this passage was seeing the beautiful connections to the ancient Israel story. The throne of grace, the language there might be a little bit, might be familiar to us, but we may not connect it where it should be connected, where the Hebrews church would have connected it to the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a visual aid, something they could have seen in the tabernacle or the temple. It's the lid for the Ark of the Covenant, and it had cherubim on both sides, and it's golden, and it covered this thing. And that's what was called the mercy seat. It's not mercy seat like mercy is having a sit-down right there. Mercy seat means it is the place where the nation of Israel would find mercy. When the high priest would go in there on the Day of Atonement, and he pours the blood of the sin offering on the mercy seat... He's finding mercy there because that's where it can be found because that's where God is meeting with man where he's giving him a way to make atonement for his sin. This throne of grace that we're approaching now has much of the imagery of the mercy seat, yet it is the heavenly mercy seat. It is God's very throne and it's not the blood of a goat or a lamb. It's the blood of Christ now that gives us the ability to draw near in time of need With confidence, man, here's what really struck me. I told you I was going to bring out some points as we unpacked, and here's an important point for this morning. It's one that I hope that you get, and it's one that's very clarifying for me and encouraging. What's encouraged here, what's taught here to a church that's on the bubble, to a church that's going through a significant amount of suffering, apparently, to a church that has their own trials, likely just doing life, aside from the Roman Empire bearing down on them, aside from the Jewish synagogue bearing down on them, aside from their family possibly disowning them for their Christianity, they've got to do life as well. And this is the encouragement that he gives them. When we draw near to this throne of grace, we'll find sympathy and we'll find mercy and we'll find grace. And these are the help. These are the help. The help is not necessarily deliverance from Rome. The help is not necessarily deliverance from the heavy hand of the synagogue or your family members bailing on you because you're following Christ. The help is not necessarily he's going to heal your cancer. It may be, but the help that he offers the Hebrews church here is mercy and grace at the throne of our creator. That's the help that he brings these guys. For this to come in focus for me and for you, should be encouraging, it should be helpful. These are the goods that a pastor is offering his suffering church. I cannot tell you how often I'm dealing with sort of a marital counseling session or I'm dealing with a Somebody saying, hey, man, I'm working through this right now. I'm working through this right now. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? And I'm trying to take them to a sermon, and their eyes glaze over, and I'm feeling a little bit sheepish, like, man, I wish I had more than this. But I'm looking at this, realizing this is the best of what I can offer. We're going to talk about how this applies at the end of the morning. But realizing the goods when you need help in time of need our grace and mercy at the throne of your creator that's the cream whatever else he might do for you is gravy gravy because that is the cream man now let's move on chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 The second thing I told you we were going to look at, the first thing was Jesus. We're going to come back to Jesus in a minute. But now we're going to take just a few minutes to consider high priesthood in general. Just the the sort of requirements of a good high priest in the history of Israel. And you'll see why this plays out here in a moment. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins... He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Now the priest served really two roles. This is a little priest education for you. They had two roles. The first one, it's not necessarily in order, it's not necessarily should even be considered the first one. It's the first one that I'll mention, is their role of representing God to man. If you want to think about the role that that a priest serves, you can also translate that to your role as priest. I mean, that's a nice little devotional connection there as a priest in our context. We represent God to our world and our workplace or our family That's our job. But here's some of the things. Here's a passage that I was just reading on my daily reading that I thought was a nice little connection. Here, you're to the, the, the priests are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken by Moses. So there's a God representation role of the priesthood. That's one of the two roles. That's not what's being spoken of here. What's being spoken of here? is representing man to God. I encourage you as a church to read Leviticus 16 last night or this week sometime, and I I read it almost entirely last week, so I encourage you to go back and get this. It's some of the goods that we need to have in front of us as we're considering it. Leviticus 16 is a beautiful picture of man representing man to God. Priest representing man to God. Priest coming into the Holy of Holies Bearing gifts and offerings, just like is communicated here. Offering gifts and sacrifices for the sins of a nation of fugitives standing around the tabernacle saying, Go Aaron! Fugitives needing to seek refuge from this white-hot holy God because of their sin. The high priest goes in there and represents man to God. Now something that's true of this high priest... He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's the language we've been talking about here. By offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. The whole book of Leviticus does a beautiful job of exposing all the different ways that might happen for a priest. Sin offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, bread offerings. Each of these have different instructions and details. Some are burned some are eaten some are partially eaten partially burned these are the gifts and sacrifices that are offered now the priest that's offering these sacrifices in general should be a pretty gentle and humble guy what he's talking about here he's helping them see that even just general priesthood there should be an a, a, an ingredient in the general high priesthood that should be sympathy since he himself is beset with weakness. Man, this guy's got to offer sacrifices for his own sinful heinie. Think about what I read last week, Leviticus 16. Before he can make atonement for the sins of the people, he's got to atone for his own sins and the sins of his own household. So what should that do? It should make homeboy super sympathetic, super humble, Super gentle. He's dealing with the ignorant and the wayward, but he should be sympathetic. It's unthinkable that a priest would be impatient and aggravated with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Here's what occurred to me as I'm studying this and considering this connection to Christ as the high priest. As important as following instructions were, Think about Nadab and Abihu that offered strange fire and became a sacrifice because they went freestyle. you to be very careful that you're following the instructions given you for each of these types of sacrifices. Yeah, it's like going to college, figuring out, okay, is this a peace offering or a sin offering or a guilt offering? Do I burn it? Do I eat part of it? You better get all that right. As important as following the instructions in the rituals was the need for inward feelings. The high priest couldn't just go about his duty in some sort of surgical um, environment. He had to have feelings himself, those feelings of sympathy for those that were bringing the offering. And those feelings should be in keeping with his sacred work. He should be sober. He should be gentle. He should be humble for different reasons altogether than Christ being, but the point that the Hebrews preacher is making here is that Christ is sober and gentle and humble. There were inward feelings involved with the sacrifice that he made for your sins. It wasn't just a surgical procedure, but inward feelings of sympathy. The high priest better have them. And he better have them in regards to dealing with the wayward and the ignorant. I'm going to take a minute to unpack the wayward and ignorant for you. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 15. I'm not going to have you turn a lot of places this morning, but um, there are certain places I want you to turn because I want you to see something very important. These next little, next couple of minutes will be the second thing that I would have put off into an application point, but it's embedded right here within the unpacking, so it's very important. Numbers chapter fifteen, we're defining the wayward and ignorant. I hope this hits you like it hit me. Numbers chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, and he goes on and gives some more instructions about unintentional sin. If you sin unintentionally, I'm not going to read any more of that specific passage. What I want you to get is if you sin unintentionally, here's what's to take place. Look over at verse 24 on the next page in my Bible. If it was done intentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma aroma to the Lord. If it was done unintentionally. Look at verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. These unintentional sinners, these are the wayward and the ignorant. What I want you to see and what I want you to hear is there's a distinct difference between someone who is thumbing their nose at God and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to continue to do what I want to do, God. And the one that says, I can't believe what I just did, God. There's provision for that one because he's the wayward and the ignorant. But the one that thumbs their nose at God, look at this in the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 30. The person who does anything with a high hand, that's a visual. This is what it looks like. God, I'm putting my hand up to you. I'm going to do what I want to do here. We're going to move in together because we love each other. We're going to be together physically because we love each other. I'm going to watch this on my computer because I need it. Mm. And I'm going to do it again and again and again. Here. Here's my hand, God. The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, whether foreign or domestic, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. The priest is expected to be sympathetic with the wayward and ignorant, not the rebellious and defiant. What a relief. There's a priestly sort of role as an elder or a priestly sort of role as a parent even in our home where we are to be stewards of the gospel, where we're to move in a way where God wants us to move, where he's illustrated cover to cover. And it's beautiful for me, for me to see this. I don't have to be sympathetic with someone who is rebellious and thumbing their nose at God. No, sir, you don't. You can be burdened for them, but you don't have to be sympathetic with that one because that's not the ignorance and the waywardness that's being spoken of here. Here. There's a beautiful illustration of this in Hebrews 10. I'll read it. I'll be there quick. Listen to this. This is not just an Old Testament thing, just so you know. Some people think, well, this side of the gospel, I can do whatever I want because the the blood of Jesus covers me, not according to my New Testament. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Man, you see the connection? But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what we just read about. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God by going on and sinning deliberately? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine, I will repay. I'm just reading in there, God's not a chump. He's not a chump and you're not gonna walk all over him. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now what this isn't saying is saying that if you ever sin after you come to Christ, then that means you're out. Going on and sinning deliberately in something that you know is a sin and you're walking into it and you're holding your hand up to God and saying, know what God, I'm thankful that he's covered my sins, but I'm going to keep on doing this thing. And I'm not going to seek help. And I'm not going to do the work work of putting sin to death. I'm not going to invite others in because I've got to stop this. This has got to end. Man, the ignorant and the wayward are the ones that are unintentionally Sinning. Those are the ones that there's provision for sin. The one who's deliberately in your face, high handedly sinning against God and continuing to do so, there is no longer payment for those sins. So the priests were not called to be sympathetic with the outright rebellious. Man, I'd like that kind of priest, wouldn't you? I'd like that kind of priest. I'd like that kind of Jesus, frankly, where I can just do whatever I want whenever I want and I get a pass and I can somehow go to the cross and say, well, he paid for my sin, so I can just continue to do whatever I want and I can continue on in this sin that's destroying me or destroying my family because Jesus is great. Where was I? Somebody got their tunes going there. Just the right time too. Man. I'd like that kind of priest. I'd like that kind of Jesus. But that's not what the ignorant and wayward means. Man, y'all need to hear that. We're not called to be sympathetic with somebody who's thumbing their nose at God. I just happened to re- be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 13 on my daily reading about the time that I was studying this passage. And I'll just read a little section to you just so you can kind of get the tone of it. Also New also New Testament, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Just listen to the tone of it. Paul's writing to a church that he loves. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, the same language of the stuff we've been reading already. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. He doesn't sound very sympathetic. Because he's not talking about the ignorant and the wayward. He's talking about the rebellious and defiant right here. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Man, this little Michael Bolton, lame Jesus thing has got to die. He's not to be trifled with. And someone who wants to go on sinning deliberately and thinking that Jesus paid for your sins needs to read the rest of their Bible. Man, he's made atonement for the ignorant and the wayward. That's the sympathy of the high priest. Read the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's scalding hot, boy. Because he's not dealing with the wayward and the ignorant. He's dealing with the rebellious and defiant. So, so far, we've established high priest X should be sympathetic. Because he himself is beset with weakness. He himself is beset with ignorance and waywardness. The sort of sin where you're like, golly, I can't believe what the mess that I've gotten into. That sort of sin. There's always some intentionality involved in sin. I know that and you know that. But sometimes you find yourself in a spot where like, how in the world did I get here? It seemed pretty harmless and innocuous at the beginning, but now I'm finding myself in a real mess and I was duped. The high priest is going to be sympathetic with that one as our high priest is sympathetic with us. The first ingredient of a good high priest is that he's sympathetic. The second ingredient of a high priest or characteristic, not ingredient like he's a a cake, is that he has calling. And it's communicated right here in passage 4, chapter 5, verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron once was. A priest must be sympathetic and a high priest must be called by God. You couldn't just take on this honor for yourself. After all, God called the Levites. If you were in the tribe of Benjamin, you said, man, I really would like to be a high priest someday. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. You're not a Levite. God ordained it. God called the whole tribe to be the, the, the people that the priests were drawn from. A priest can't appoint himself. He's got to be called by God, and he's got to be sympathetic. Those are the two characteristics of a proper high priest. Now, when I consider the kind of priests that God called, I'm encouraged that he has a pattern of taking the foolish things that confound the wise and to work with like he did with tax collectors and sinners, he works with some pretty frail, feeble folks. I'm thinking about some of the high priests over the ages, or some of the priests that are, are noteworthy. Aaron certainly had occasions where he did a good job mediating for the people, but he certainly had occasions that just make you want to slap him, beat him about head and shoulders. <laughs> Y'all give me all your gold, and then I'm going to, uh, Moses asking him about that, and he says, yeah, I took all their gold, and then I threw it in the fire, and pop, out came a calf. Read the language of it. It's like, man, you're you're just laughable, Aaron. Are Aaron and Miriam trying to undermine Moses' leadership? Man, Aaron did some things well, but, man, he wasn't perfect. And then you think about his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire. Some other priests that are noteworthy are Eli, portly Eli, with his portly sons Phinehas and Hophni, that ate all the fat of the offerings and did plenty else. And then if you can fast forward right up to the time of Christ, Caiaphas, things just don't look great for the priesthood. I think the world and Israel for sure are in need of a better high priest. At this point in the message, I was thinking about one of my favorite passages in the book of Job. I'll share it with you. It is quite a treasure Job chapter 9 verse 33, would that there were an arbiter between us, me and God, who might lay his hand on both of us. Would that there was somebody that wasn't frail and feeble and inconsistent who might put a hand on the creator and a hand on me and say, let's reconcile this thing. Man, you read the requirements there, sympathy and calling, And then you see the performance record and the track record, and it's not very good. Israel's in need of a better and perfect high priest. And that's where we continue in Hebrews chapter 5. Now, watch for the prerequisites. You're going to see them both here in reverse order as I read. So, also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's a reference to Psalm 2. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from Psalm 110. And now in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience Through what he suffered. I told you breaking down the passages we were looking at. We're going to look at some Christ truths. And then we're going to look at general high priest X truths. And now we're coming back to Christ as high priest. And we're going to connect the general high priest truths to Christ as high priest. And here you see both of the prerequisites. Calling and sympathy in that order. Let's look at calling first in verses 5 and 6. These passages, these references to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are important references, references they help us make sense of what's taking place here. They're having to do with the calling of Christ. The Hebrews preacher is saying that a high priest can't appoint himself to that job. He's got to be called to the role of high priest. And these are the passages that tell us that Christ was also called. Even the Son of God could not appoint himself to that role It's important to see that no one takes this honor for himself remember the psalm 2 passage has to do with the appointment of a king the psalm 2 passage you are my son today i have begotten you is likely having to do with the coronation of david and then the psalm 110 passage was a passage that had to do with the appointment of a priest but it wasn't a levite priest it was of a whole new order the order of Melchizedek. There were two lines of thought in ancient Israel regarding the Messiah. One line thought the Messiah was going to be like a Davidic Messiah. It was going to be like David. It was just going to come and just kick behind, take names. After Jesus fed the multitudes and before he crossed the Sea of Galilee, walking across the Sea of Galilee... The crowds wanted to make him king. It's likely those crowds were thinking about Christ in this respect, a Davidic-type Messiah that was going to be like David. And we see some of the Davidic-type Messiah, some of the kingly Messiah in the way Christ moved. A crown of thorns is not the way we would pick. crown of thorns, riding a donkey's colt, wearing purple robes with a placard above his crucified head, King of the Jews. The other view was that he would be an Aaronic Messiah, not Aaronic, as in like Aaron type Messiah. He's going to be like David or he's going to be like Aaron. The only problem is Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levite, Levi. He wasn't a Levite, so something's got to intervene here. I just can't imagine that the nation of Israel reading Psalm 110 over the years wouldn't have scratched their head going, who are they talking about here? A priest that's not a Levite? I mean, I know about mystery man Melchizedek, but what does Psalm 110 have to do with anybody? It comes full circle right here in Christ. Christ was born through the line of Judah, not the Levites, so he had to become a priest through some other way. So the problem was answered in his appointment and call to a priesthood of an altogether different line, the line of Melchizedek. The king of Salem was who Melchizedek was. We're going to spend next week considering mystery man Mel. The king of Salem likely was the king of Jerusalem. They believe that he's the king of Jerusalem. When David defeated Jerusalem and became king in Jerusalem, and reigned over Israel, he assumed the line of Melchizedek. So David, in some ways, although he didn't exercise a priestly role, he assumed the line of Melchizedek. Christ was born through that line, so Christ takes on both of those lines. As Christians, we're not looking for two messiahs, one Davidic, one kingly, one priestly, one Aaronic. We're looking for one, and in Christ we find them both king and priest and he was called to this office it's this a beautiful passage we could spend a, a day just considering this passage alone i told christy that this passage just really that I, there's lots of stuff we're not even really exploring here it's like eagle brand condensed milk uh, or like concentrate orange juice we're just skimming the surface of it but boy, what treasure here that we are gleaning. Christ was called just like a high priest was supposed to be called and he was called king and priest. And the other thing we see here is we see sympathy. Think about the passage that we started with this morning back in verses 14 and 15 or 15 and 16. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Man, there's passages that point to his sympathy, but if you want to see his sympathy illustrated, you see it here in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this passage here is pointing clearly, clearly to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to turn to Psalm 22 while I read the excerpt from Gethsemane. Psalm 22. Here's our excerpt from Gethsemane. Think about this. Think about the humanity of Christ. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and greatly troubled, greatly transfers over to troubled as well. God, the son, was greatly distressed and greatly troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Man, he's quite human. Troubled. Troubled. Falling to the ground. Yeah, there's sympathy there. Listen to Psalm 22. If Mark chapter whatever that passage I just read, Mark chapter 14, if that is the factual account of that moment where he's crying out to God, Psalm 22 is the song written about Gethsemane and the arrest and the crucifixion. Like if someone were to write a song that you might sing together on a a corporate worship morning, this was a song the nation of Israel were singing about their Christ that would come and his humanity and his sympathy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You tell me he doesn't know how to sympathize when you feel forsaken? Read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You think Christ can't sympathize with you when you feel like God is distant? Man, this is the song written about Gethsemane. And the passion of Christ. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I, on the other hand, am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You think he can't relate to the trials of the Hebrews church in Rome? He went through them. Oh, man, he's sympathetic with the human problem. He's groaning, he's crying, he's feeling forsaken. You read the rest of that psalm, and man, it is a song written about Gethsemane and about the passion of Christ. Yeah, he's sympathetic. And he's called. He's got the requisites, the requirements to be a good high priest. One of the things I enjoy, this is the third thing that I told you that I would give you a little bit of heads up as I'm bringing important things out. This is the third thing that I think connects to the first thing. That God heard him, but he did not spare him. God heard his cries, he heard his groaning, he heard his prayers, but he did not spare him this should be an encouragement for you when you're in the midst of something and you're calling out and you're crying out to God and you feel like he's far distant like he's not helping it should be an encouragement to you to see that God heard his cries yet he did not spare him so when you call out to God and you feel like you're getting the wrong answer or you're not heard This should be an encouragement that if he did not do this with his own son and there's no promise, he will deliver you from your trial. Really, the promise is that there will be help in your trial. And that help, remember, is grace and mercy. Grace and mercy to help in time of need. He may be perfecting you through it or he may have a higher purpose through what he's letting you go through. Let's continue our last couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 5. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, turn to Romans chapter 5. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The source of salvation, the source of eternal salvation should be what I qualify there. Nice qualifying word, eternal salvation as opposed to yearly salvation. Or daily salvation. If you were like me, you were likely having to make a lot of trips to the tabernacle or temple. If you're like me, you're probably going to have a really tiny little herd. (laughs) Because you're wearing it out every single day. I'm heading off. I can't even find out a blemish when I'm worn. They're all gone. Man. When I'm thinking about the Day of Atonement, that takes place once a year. And thinking in contrast to the salvation that Christ earned as high priest, it is eternal salvation. It is finished. When he said it's finished, it's finished. There's no more sacrifices to be made. Worshippers have been perfected through this sacrifice once and for all. Man, I love this language, the source of eternal salvation. I found a reference to a guy named Philo, who was an ancient Hebrew philosopher. He used the language from this passage. He would have been alive likely when this letter was written. And I wonder if he wasn't, if the, the writer of, of Hebrews wasn't influenced by Philo in some ways, because he used the same language. Philo used the language of this source of eternal salvation when he was writing about what God did through Noah. It's beautiful. And what God did with the bronze serpent. There's some beautiful connections there as you explore that. What's being communicated here contextually is that Christ is the pioneer of salvation to all who obey him, like Noah was a pioneer for humanity in building an ark. It's a nice transfer, but Romans 5 does the best job of it, I think, of connecting it to what's really going on here. Verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If while we were yet enemies. If while we were yet fugitives, standing around the tabernacle, waiting for somebody to deal with our sin, not yearly, not daily, but once and for all, Christ penetrated behind the veil into the holiest of holies, and he achieved and secured eternal salvation. What what hit me this week, what I've been enjoying this week is just thinking about the reality that the one that we need to seek refuge from is now the one we can seek refuge in because of what Christ has done, because of what our high priest has done. The white hot holy God that we need to seek refuge from because we are sinners with Israel, by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, crossways with a holy God, we can now seek refuge in because of what that high priest has done. Man, that's good medicine right there. He makes enemies friends. And better than that, he makes those friends now family. He calls us his sons. Man, that's the scandal of the gospel right there. Now, if you did the work of engaging this message, I know it's a different type of message. I told Christy this week, I said, you know, it's really probably more Bible study than a typical sermon but it needs to be exposed and there's really no other way to expose it. It's Hebrews. <laughs> it's it's uh, Eagle Brand. So we're going to unpack it. Whatever anybody's expectations are, we're going to unpack it. And I thought at the end, you know, what I'd like to do right now is I want to help you apply it a little bit. I've been thinking this week that if your home is like mine, if we share the human's experience at all, which the more and more Y'all get to know us, and I get to know you. You know it's true. I suspect that you face various difficulties every single day. I mean, life may not be bad. It may be. But I think across the board, we're experiencing various difficulties from day to day. Sickness, loss, pain, depression, overwork, fatigue, meaninglessness, frustration, miscommunication. Have you ever been in that little... Weird place where you somebody you married you cannot communicate with for some reason? You love each other and say she loves you and you're like, I, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> That's a weird place to be in. It happens to everybody. It happens in every home. Miscommunication. It's just general aggravation. Just where things just aren't going your way. It's the stupidest stuff that gets me so aggravated. If I drop a pen and I reach over to pick it up and don't get it the first time, I find myself getting aggravated. <laughs> like I miss it. Oh. and it, Sometimes it happens three or four times. Like, and I finally, when I get it, I get in my pocket. I'm, these little micro problems, I mean, really, they're not big, but some of them are huge. But just on any scale, think about the kind of things that we deal with from day to day. Dropping a pen is <laughs> its not a biggie you know, but... How about, how about some big things like regret or just sadness? What's sometimes the worst is when it's unexplained sadness. Like you can't put your finger on why. You're like, man, I love Jesus. I can't understand why I'm so sad right now. Man, when you're dealing with these sort of things, it is so easy to try and muscle your way through them and never to connect the gospel in Christ to any of them. It's easy. The work is really to connect things like Christ as high priest to those sorts of things. That's the work of worship, I think. It is so easy to consider truths like this each week to make notes to bring our our notebook and make notes and to you know to really engage and you walk away going man I really got my hands around crisis high priest I think that's easier than to then go take that and figure out how that connects to sadness or how that connects to daily struggles that's the hard part and that's what the hebrews preacher is trying to foster here it seems Man, these things can so often remain parallel. For most of my life, what took place in the sanctuary or worship center and what took place as someone's preaching just remained kind of a parallel storyline to mine. I did life over here, and this still mattered to me. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I believed all every bit of it. But it just stayed parallel to life. And in some ways, I just kind of became a fact collector. Worshipper, but fact collector. But real worship began to take place when I realized that this stuff that's on parallel has got to turn where it starts to intersect with Tuesday and Din and marriage and parenting and dropping a pin or sadness or regret. That's where worship really finds purchase. So the point the Hebrews preacher is making with his church is that the high priesthood of Christ should be brought to bear in their struggles. That's what mature folk do. That's what he's saying. But he's equipping them for it. He, he doesn't say, go, go do it. He's going to give them about six chapters. No. Yeah, five, five chapters worth of that. We're going to have eight Sundays worth of it. Man, we're going to be equipped to go connected. He wants their church, his church, to see the high priesthood of Christ should be brought to bear in their struggles. That Christ's sympathy should encourage them that though they have a sacred and transcendent and great high priest and representative that he's also still human does that ever occur to you think about that for a minute he didn't leave his humanity when he ascended to be at the father's right hand he ascended in his resurrection body the same body that he ate fish with the same body that bore the scars from his crucifixion he is Human, Not he was sympathetic, he is sympathetic and that's got to encourage the Hebrews church and has got to encourage us. He's a sympathetic high priest who understands when you feel lonely, who understands when you don't think you can handle difficult stuff. He is a sympathetic high priest who understands when you have to face something that's going to be hard and painful. He's one who understands when you feel like bailing out and taking the easy way out. He's one who understands when you've been duped by Satan and you find yourself awash in a mess. Though he didn't fall to the wind, he understands it. He's an expert on wind because he resisted it. Man, this should be wielded in the den... When you talk with your kids, that's the first example I'm going to give you, the two examples. just I thought, you know, I cannot tell you how to apply high priesthood of Christ in your home. I'm busy trying to figure out how to apply high priesthood of Christ in my home. <laughs> I'm not in your home. I don't know the kind of things that you face at work. I, I don't know what your pin drop is. You know, or your regret or your sadness. I do in some ways, and I can encourage you in that. But ultimately, you've got to be the one that brings this to bear. So I thought, what I'll do this week is I'll share two little examples. One about first, about the sympathy of Christ and how I think it can play out in the McGraw household. It's just an example. This is more testimony. I'm moving from preacher to sharing a testimony right now. Y'all know that in our home, uh, two of our kids are visually impaired, very capable. Some of y'all may not even know that. Very, very capable of what they're... I mean, they do lots of stuff, even despite an impairment. Luke's vision is not quite as good as Evan's. And um, they, there are various struggles that we face in the McGraw household that are just part of who we are, part of what we do. It's life. And one of those struggles is Evan wants to be an artist. And she is an artist. Gracious. I mean, any of you ever seen kind of stuff she draws. It's awesome. Good stuff. We're teaching some of our little kids art, which is awesome to me. But sometimes, like her eyes get really tired. And they get so tired, she gets aggravated. She's like, man, I don't want my eyes to get so tired so early in the day because I have so much to do. She gets up at like 6.30. We never told her to get up at 6.30. She's just getting it done. And her eyes are that, that thing that's holding her back or she feels like that at times. So, man, how this is going to play out for us and how it has in the past, what we've tried to talk about in the past and what we will continue to relentlessly talk about in the past is that Christ is sympathetic with that. It's not a sin issue, it's, it's, it's more like one of those things that you're just almost kind of a, caught up in. Obviously, God knitted them together in the womb, He didn't leave anything out, it's on purpose. He designed them that way so he could be glorified through that. So the beauty is we mature when vision stuff becomes less of a trial, still a trial, then Jesus stuff becomes a blessing. When a high priest standing in the throne room bringing mercy and grace to help us in time of need becomes enough. That's all we've got, but that's everything. Man, that's the goods, remember? That's the cream. That's what I want to take them to. Other, other things that we deal with, man, this travels Christ as a sympathetic high priest that our, the, throne, uh, the approachability of the throne trumps a bad grade. <laughs> Doesn't it? Hey, that's not hard for some of us. We're like, oh yeah, I made a bad grade, whatever. But not for some of us. Some of us that have McGraw DNA, it's very important to make really good grades, which I'm thankful for, because I know where it comes from. This desire for, man, I want to. Mm. When the approachability of the throne trumps a bad grade or less than what you'd hope for, when Christ's blood... on the heavenly mercy seat, the throne, becomes so vivid that the things of earth grow strangely dim. That's when we're growing in maturity. (laughs) I wish it were like a pill that we could just pass out. I wish it was like a patch you could put on, you know, or a hat. I got it. You know, there it is. God high, Christ is high priest and... It's going to, our lens, that would be nice. The lens you put on and the, everything you see now, you see in view of Christ as a high priest. The only way this happens is work, doing the work of worship, figuring out how does this connect to my life. Man, Christ's blood in the heavenly mercy seat becomes so vivid that the things of earth grow, grow strangely dim, that the guy that's bullying you on the soccer team, that's acting ugly, that certainly doesn't want to be your friend grows dim he's still there he's still there but it's not as vivid it's not as hard because i found mercy and grace in time of help time of need and help in time of need the other thing this is shorter christ is our high priest that was just an example of christ as sympathetic high priest how that might play out in the mcgraw home The other example was Christ as high priest. This should be considered when we are keenly aware of our sin. I want to think about how this might apply to my marriage. How can Christ's role as high priest connect to our marriage? When we've fumbled, when we don't want to face anyone, much less God, it should be an encouragement to you, as it should have been to the Hebrews church, that Christ has made a sacrifice for your sins once and for all. And earned eternal salvation. So the God you're seeking refuge from can now be the God you seek refuge in, because of what this high priest has done and is doing. This should be brought to bear in our marriages. Christy and I were talking about this over the weekend. We had to make a little road trip to Waco, and we're on our way back. We're almost back to Greenville, <clears throat> and uh, we just had a couple of hours before Christy had to head off to the uh, um, ladies' retreat, and we had to whip up dinner, you know and get that ready, Christy was cooking this, this new meal plan, it's amazing, and um, she said, hey, babe, um, whenever we get home, do you think you could help me get dinner ready, and, you know, because I'm really going to be rushed trying to get out, I said, you know what, baby, the high priesthood of Christ, oh, by the way, this is my day off on Friday, I said, okay, you know, the high priesthood of Christ has zero to do with me helping you cook dinner on my day off, so no, I'm sorry, baby. <laughs> oh, we laughed. It was funny, because we'd just been talking for like an hour. We've been talking for like an hour about how does this connect to our marriage? Or how could this connect to our marriage? And that's when she asked me, said, No, no, I'm sorry. Christ as high priest has nothing to do with me helping you with dinner on my day off. You out of luck. But in reality, what we talked about was really cool. That Christ as high priest serving in the throne room night right now, having penetrated the veil. This should create in Ben McGraw a searchable accountability that's not irreparably wronged. That's me. Anybody else like that? When I'm wronged, I'm irreparably wronged. I mean, do you know what you have done? To me, I'm irreparably wronged. I don't know that you can climb a mountain high enough to secure forgiveness from, for what you have done. I mean, this was wrong, but seeing Christ as high priest, sympathetically, humbly, gently making payment for my sins, makes me want to be accountable and searchable, not irreparably wronged. Instead of irreparably wronged, leaning forward in forgiveness forevermore, eager to forgive considering what's taken place eager to forgive, considering Christ as high priest. Something else it does in me, and I hope that it would do in you, is knowing that you have a high priest mediating for you should compel you to put sin to death. Seeing that the ignorant and wayward are not the ignorant and waywardness in where you just keep on plowing off into sin that you know is sin and you doing it intentionally. But where you're really going to be serious about seeking some help you are going to be calling out to people that are in your church family. Yes, you should be most vulnerable with your church family. A lot of times we're most vulnerable with people we work with and least vulnerable with our church family because they've all got it together and we want them to think we do too. So we paint on our Sunday morning smiles. That's not church. Man, Christ as high priest makes me want to be dealing with sin in my life. I've shared with y'all before. That Ben McGraw has a temper. Some of y'all know that. You've been on the receiving end of it at different times. In 10 years, it happens. But oftentimes, the people I take it out on, right there. Right there. I can be so gentle with y'all. Right there. Where I get impatient. And I, I want to be accountable for that. One of my closest friends, Greg Fields, is a gifted counselor. He's a pastor of a church here as well, a gifted counselor. I'm going to counsel with my closest friend who's a counselor. Help me figure myself out. Help me not continue and plow off into this sin intentionally because there's too much at stake. Does that trouble you to know that your pastor is taking counsel from another pastor? It's like counseling, counseling. Like, here, I'm going to write you a check afterward. That kind of counseling. Counseling. I mean, for real counseling. <laughs> that kind. I hope, it maybe, maybe sets you free. Maybe it'll encourage you that you can do the same. If you're plowing off into intentional sin, that you can know that there no longer remains a sacrifice for those who are sinning deliberately, intentionally. But a fiery expectation of judgment. Oh, man. There's a lot at stake. Christ is our, our high priest sympathetic high priest it travels but you're going to have to figure out how it travels to your context you're going to have to figure out how it travels in your setting that's the work of worship it's what mature folk do is connected alright now let's, I'm going to pray no I'm going to wait until I have the. Uh... no I'm going to pray I'm going to pray and then we'll have our supper Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for what Christ has done as our high priest. I'm thankful that we have a perfect, great high priest, in fact, that was better than Aaron, better than Joshua, or or better than Nadab and Abihu, better than Eli, better, better than Phinehas and Hophni, better than Caiaphas, better than the shepherds of Israel, Lord, I'm thankful that you somehow in some ways allowed that darkness of disappointment to develop so that when Christ came, that your people would see forevermore the beauty of the high priest that we have in Christ. God, I pray that I hope that this connected to the Hebrews church and that this encouraged them to not fall away and to not trade the shadow for the substance. That they had in Christ. And Lord I pray the same for this church. That we can connect to the substance. That we'll not be okay with ABC's. But we will desire meat. And that we'll beyond that. It won't be just fact collecting. It will be desiring meat for the sake of playing out on Tuesday. Or playing out in den. Playing out in marriage. Playing out in parenting. Playing out in just Life. God, I pray for that. I beg for that. I feel so um, frail and feeble in this myself. So I expect that this room is full of people that are just sitting here wondering how this is going to play out. And God, I pray that you'll just move us just at your pace and at your time and on your schedule that you will grow us into maturity that we will be a people that are connecting connecting these things. That we'll have a wisdom that will connect them. Don't let them be parallel, please. Please. And we are thankful for the mercy and grace that we find at the throne. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 7. It's a nice, uh, appropriate connection to our supper, I feel like, in light of Christ as the high priest. Listen to this passage. It was uh, some instructions given to Moses about what the priests were to do with the sacrifices. And I want you to think about what I'm about to read in light of what we do each week, eating this supper. I want you to connect this to this passage. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers a sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution. From the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that's waved and the thigh that's contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It's a perpetual due throughout their generations. What I want you to see that what we're about to do, that we do every week, is a perpetual due for us. We are partaking of the offering before really spending some time in my Old Testament and really spending a lot of time in Leviticus, I didn't realize that the offerings, a portion of the offerings were eaten. They were eaten by the priests. Portions were eaten, I believe, even by the worshipers themselves. How fitting is it that we eat of our offering each week? Now, this is not physical body and blood of Jesus. We're not saying that. But it represents his physical body and blood And we are connecting to the offering that he has made once and for all as high priest and sacrifice. And we are eating of the offering with God. Man, that's pretty cool. We are eating the offering when we eat Christ that we do each week. Enjoy that with me this morning as we distribute the elements and then we'll take and eat and drink.